Heavenly Father, we love you. We need you. We're so thankful that you, who have no need of us, yet you love us and you invite us into your presence, not as fearful servants, but as beloved children, adopted sons and daughters. We come into your presence with thanksgiving, fully aware that our only way in is through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we worship and adore you this morning. Would you help us as we talk about this topic to be more Christ-like in our thinking and more Christ-like in our doing, uh, as you would have us be, conformed to the image of your son, as we are sanctified day after day, transformed from one degree of glory into another until we see him face to face and that final moment when our sanctification becomes complete glorification and we spend all eternity in perfect peace with you forever. And we pray these things in Christ's name this morning. Amen. So reading from Colossians chapter 4, we'll actually spend a little bit of time in Colossians this morning, Um, maybe one or two different uh, um, passages. So if you open your Bibles there, it might be helpful. But Colossians chapter 4, if you've read Colossians before, Colossians is one of the most enjoyable books to memorize. It flows so well. Chapter 1 is opening prayer and then into the preeminence of Christ. And then chapter 2, that preeminence teaches us how we ought to think about the world around us and its influences. And then chapter 3 tells us about our union with Christ and his coming return and us appearing with him in glory and so forth, putting on the new self. Uh, And then chapter 4, there's this kind of steady stream of uh, etc. He has some comments that he needs to make. And so if you try to memorize Colossians, you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and then it feels like he can kind of hit a wall because it becomes a little bit more sporadic after that. He's mentioning this person and that person and so forth. But he says a couple things in the beginning of chapter 4 that I want to read, uh, specifically verses 5 and 6. And you'll see verse 6 at the top of your handout there. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we want to talk about the topic this morning of being winsomely reformed. It's It's a phrase that you may be more or less familiar with. It's becoming increasingly popular uh, in, in our world currently. There are whole schools, seminaries, for example, that talk about their disposition as winsomely reformed, and it receives both great support, like a hearty acknowledgement of the value of this sort of approach to theology and doctrinal disagreement, and there are some on the other side who are uh, frankly, quite against the notion, and they think that it's a sign of some sort of uh, softness or compromise. And so we want to talk about being winsomely reformed, which I'm going to say up front and show my hand. Uh, I think it's a brilliant idea. I love the, the phrase. I think that it represents a biblical approach to doctrinal disagreement, uh, but it needs to be tempered with, as most things, a balance, a balanced approach to doctrinal disagreement, whether it be within the church or outside of it. So let's start by asking some questions. What, is, what do we even mean when we say be winsome? Uh, yeah, Craig, do you have a question? I have a confession. Oh, okay. I don't know fully why, but I don't like the word winsome. Okay. And I've been thinking about it for quite some time, and I don't, it's not for the reasons you just said. It's more, it doesn't feel biblical to me. It just feel, it feels like, why not say graciously reformed? Or why... Sure. And then anything that's like newly popular, mm-hmm. it feels like this word's just like a modern well catchphrase, and it's be, like takes off, and then you're like, this feels weird. Right, Craig. I understand the question, and Cindy said something very key that I'm going to um, restate. It is an old word, it and and it's it's similar to other words that in their older context, sound a little off-putting to us. For example, I'm going to, oh, and I didn't bring the book with me. Um, John Calvin wrote a letter to William Farrell 
in September of 1541, where he encourages him to be more accommodating to people. And we hear that word and go, whoa, no, 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 no. We're, not, we're not accommodating to people's doctrinal, you know, with that word is even more distasteful in our mouths today. And he means gracious. The context of his letter, clearly what he's saying to Pharaoh is, you're being a bit of a bulldog and it's not helping anybody. Uh, so I think, let me encourage you and the rest of us, if, if the word winsome, Dr. Olson, let me, uh, if the word winsome seems a bit um, off-putting, let's go through this together and see where we come out at the end. And if you have another word that you'd like to fill in there that's a, a synonym, you are welcome to do so. Dr. Olson. Yes. Yes. Right. It's winsome in that it's not it's not um, bulldogish. He's not bulldozing the people that he disagrees with. And I do want to mention that there's going to be we're going to make a bit of a distinction as we go through our our hour here between doctrinal disagreements within the church uh, and addressing theological heresy or total. Um, uh, lack of understanding of the faith from outside the church. So a little bit, a little bit of a distinction there. So we'll get there, Steve. Yeah. Um, I also like the pun, like be winsome in order to win some. Right. Exactly. When you see the word "therefore," you ask the question, "What's it there for?" Same thing. Be winsome to win some. So what do we mean? Well, I like to answer the question in the negative first. I think it's helpful to say what we don't mean because it's more likely that these are the questions that you have. Being winsome is not simply an evangelistic tool. It's not the reformed version of a bait and switch. We don't seem really sweet and kind on the outside and, oh, we would love to have you. Oh, yeah, no, we understand that you, don't, that you disagree with that. That's fine. And then when you come inside the walls of the church, we get you and we become really dogmatic and rigid and harsh and cruel about disagreements within the church. That's a, that's a poor way to win people to Christ. Uh, and it's a inappropriate evangelistic tool. So we're not talking about a bait and switch where we just put on a front of being kind and gentle in order to appease people who we want to come into the church. It's not a preaching method. Winsome is not a hermeneutical, or excuse me, a homiletical method where uh, the pastor, in an effort to not offend, fails to exhort, admonish, correct, or rebuke. That's not what we're talking about. And so if you hear the term winsomely reformed and you picture uh, the pastor who never says anything controversial or cutting, then you're talking about two different things. That's not what we mean. It's not a preaching method. Adopting the nomenclature winsomely reformed is not an opportunity to avoid speaking the hard truth. Even Paul in the Areopagus confronted the, the philosophers there about their bad worldview. He told them, you worship something that you don't know, and I'm telling you who he is, and he demands that you repent. And so it's not an opportunity to avoid speaking the hard truth. It's not an out or an excuse from confronting sin. So if a brother or sister is caught up in sin, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, which we mentioned, I think, last week, it's still the responsibility of believers to approach that person and see them come out of that. But what does Paul say in, in that context in Galatians 6, do so in a spirit of gentleness, right? So there's an approach. Scott here is caught up in a I'm talking about Scott to my left, not Scott to my right. Scott here is caught up in a sin, and I come up to him, and there's a way that I can approach him. Brother, I, can you explain to me why you think this is a good idea? I, I love you, and I'm here confronting you over the sin because of my desire to see you walk in faithfulness to Christ. There's a difference, a big difference between that and uh, option one, which is common, going online and telling everybody about Scott's sin in order to try to shame him into changing or confronting him in a spirit of uh, judgmentalism or harshness. And winsomely reformed. Winsome is not a sort of soft or gentle ecumenicalism that fails to confront doctrinal error. In other words, it's not saying, you speak your truth, I'll speak mine. That's not what we mean. Winsome is not a backboneless Christianity. Uh, it is, however, a, a, an approach to the way we handle doctrinal disagreements. I'll use my brother Craig as an example here. Just now, he said, Kyle, 
I apologize. I want you to know, I, you know, I, we appreciate each other and we talk about these things before and after Sunday school. And he says, but I'm kind of struggling over this word winsome. That was frankly a winsome way to approach this topic, wasn't it? Instead of saying, this is so stupid, this word, is a, it's got cultural baggage, I don't know why in the world we talk about this nonsense, we should be focusing on more important things. That would not be helpful to anybody, beneficial to me, it's certainly not going to open dialogue between us. Rather, he says, I don't know if I'm on board with this term, and I say, gotcha, let me see if I can convince you during our time together in Sunday school, but at the end of the day, the word winsome is not a biblical word, and so if you come out and say, I'd like to be gently reformed or graciously reformed, or I'd like my disagreements to be seasoned with salt, as Paul says, good for you, and we're okay, we're on the same team. Um, so there's some comments here in your outline, um, failure to exhort, can't we all just get along Uh, and so forth that may be reflective of some perspectives you've heard on what it means to be winsome that I would disagree with. What I think being winsome is, and there's a four-part description here, and I'll read it all out together and then we'll parse it out. Being winsome is having a theological backbone with a tender heart and an inclination to serve in humility. That's what being winsome is. It's having a theological backbone with a tender heart and an inclination to serve in humility. So let's explain that. Having a theological backbone is biblical. So toss the word winsome out the window. If we land on any conclusion that says we don't need to be convicted of our faith and what the Bible says is true, then that's, we're talking about two different things. I would disagree with the notion that winsome means squishy theologically. I mean, I'm squishy, but not theologically, right? So I I mean to say, I don't want us to land on the conclusion that our approach to disagreement within the church or without the church means that we compromise on doctrinal truth. It is a theological backbone. In fact, here specifically, we're speaking about being winsomely reformed. We are a confessional church. Um, And now Pastor Stewart is very good about commenting on this during our membership vows. He says, I believe it's the sixth vow. He says, we're not saying here that you have to agree check mark by check mark with everything that the governing standards of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church or the Westminster Standards articulate, but you agree that we get there biblically. You can winsomely submit to the leadership and doctrines of our church. And everybody says, I do. Now, as elders and pastors in the denomination, we need to say a little bit more than that. We actually do uh, adhere to those standards and believe in those, but we do so with an understanding that it's a, a confession, which is the outline of what we believe the Bible says, and ultimately, this is our only rule for faith and practice. And so we don't give up our theological footing or foundation because we're winsome. We have a theological backbone, however, that's coupled with a tender heart. What do I mean by having a tender heart? I don't necessarily mean that you're an emotionally driven person or, or um, that your tone of voice is even necessarily a certain way. I'm very aware there, there is a world of difference between the way that Marshall Clement speaks or Jim Van Erden speaks or Sonny White speaks and the way that I speak. I've got just enough Marine Corps left in me that when I teach or when I counsel and disciple or when I'm just uh, even speaking with my children or my wife, that there's an undertone to my voice that I've worked hard to try to get rid of and it's stuck there. Um, So I'm not even talking about tone of voice, although that matters in conversation. What I mean about a tender heart, having a tender heart, is that we recognize that we once were living in darkness too. Now, whether we're talking about folks outside of the faith and we recognize that we were totally depraved sinners that have been saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, or we're talking about someone who has yet to understand the full revelation of God's truth in Scripture, we have all been there. All of us have. We've come from a place of less Christian maturity to more Christian maturity, hopefully. We've come from a place of outside of the covenant community to inside the covenant community. And so having that posture, that tender-hearted appreciation for where that person may be right now in their walk with Christ ought to inform the way that you communicate with them about something that we disagree on, shouldn't it? Um, let me give you a practical example. My wife and I <clears throat> excuse me, talk about this pretty often. Our children 
Well, let me back up. One of the best bits of advice I've ever gotten was from a fella by the name of Scott Morningstar. Scott was a wonderful man, good, good friend. He was a missionary uh, on Native American reservations in Canada and Pacific Northwest of the U.S. for over 25 years. Just a wonderful guy. And he said to me one day when I had, I might have only had Abby at the time, he said, don't expect your two-year-old to act like a 22-year-old. But sometimes we do that in the church, don't we? Uh, with people that we disagree with, someone who's theologically less mature, who's not been shown the ropes of what it means to be an obedient follower of Christ or hasn't thought through these topics. You know, I I like to comment often with new believers. I I disciple a couple of guys who are in the newer stages of their walk with Christ. And it's, it's interesting to me that almost to a person... When a, when a man or a woman becomes a Christian in later in life, late teens, but I mean 20s, 30s, 40s, they're almost always interested in prophecy and eschatology. Almost always they want to read Revelation or some prophetic book, Ezekiel, and try to figure out what it's talking about, really, so they can understand Revelation. And I often encourage them, let's, let's go way back. Let's read Genesis together. Now, let's read John together, and from the Gospel of John, look at the rest of Scripture, and then eventually we'll get there. But we need to be thinking more tenderly about those who are somewhere else down the trail of their Christian journey when it comes to theological disagreement. So we want to have our theological backbone, but we want to approach people with an application of the gospel of grace, tenderheartedness, and an inclination to serve. What I mean there is there's a, there's a, a world of difference between convincing someone that they're wrong and showing them what the truth is. So let's turn to Acts chapter 18. I love this passage for a number of reasons. There's a a, a really humorous (coughs) example of this uh, online that you can find. I'll read this and then I'll, I'll tell you what it was. It was pretty funny. Acts chapter 18, verse 24 Uh, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They desire, they heard this man who had doctrinal error concerning baptism, and they said, hold on, we love what you're doing. I mean, that's a big deal. The Luke here records for us that he was eloquent, that he was speaking boldly and fervently concerning the things of Jesus Christ. He's complimenting the character of Apollos right up front, and then referencing the fact that, but he was missing this element. And so a couple of mature Christians took him aside and explained to him the way more accurately, and then we understand that he went on to continue to teach better. For us, in our day and age, our polemical age, so much of what we see, rather, is that someone's wrong, and so that that issue becomes the summary of their entire character and theological competence, and they're rather torn down for their mistake than built up in the truth. Uh, R.C. Sproul was at a conference, and Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, <coughs> is sitting to Sproul's left, and John MacArthur is sitting to Sproul's right, and so he's obviously uh, outnumbered here on this stage, and, and um, Al Mohler's reading this passage, and he says, um, you know, reads it, he said, he was taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism in John, so Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him more accurately. And Sproul goes, yeah, before they took him aside, he didn't know that you're supposed to baptize babies. Right in front of these two, you know, <laughs> dispensational Baptist guys. It, it was really funny that he, you know, hits MacArthur in the shoulder because they had a really good relationship. <laughs> but the point is, being winsome means that we want to have a theological backbone with a tender heart and appreciation of where we came from. Paul says this all the time, doesn't he? Don't forget you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, and so forth, in order to encourage them to think about others the same way. An inclination to serve and in humility. Humility is kind of the summary clause there at the end. I want 
us to be thinking about ourselves properly, which ought to encourage us to think about others better. Paul encourages us that way in Philippians. There's a story of Hugh Latimer preaching before Henry VIII, and Latimer, perhaps you've heard this, I know Jim has heard this, we, we talked about it recently. Uh, Latimer, in his sermon before the court, uh, basically tears King uh, Henry VIII up and down for his divorce and uh, remarriage and so forth. Uh, And then he's challenged by the king that if you don't apologize at the next time you preach here, it's going to be your head. And so Latimer comes out before the, he he thanks the king. He says, thank you for the opportunity uh, to do it right. And so he kind of says, I understand the dynamic here and I I appreciate that. And then at his next engagement to preach before the court, he says, "Uh, I said to myself this morning, Mr. Latimer, you're preaching before the king. And so be careful that you don't say anything offensive. And then I remembered, Mr. Latimer, this morning, you're preaching before God Almighty, so don't fail to hold back the truth. And so he had a theological backbone, but he also wasn't aiming to just upset people for the sake of it. And in fact, the king was so impressed by his boldness in the Lord that he uh, complimented him on another sermon that basically took him to task. Well, yeah, eventually. I mean... Yeah, being winsome, by the way, being winsome doesn't save you necessarily from persecution. So this is what we're talking about. I'm not talking about um, a preaching method or uh, a squishy ecumenicalism, but rather a theological conviction that tenderly and humbly acknowledges that other people need to learn the truth of Scripture. So does it matter? Does it even matter if we're winsome? Part two here. Uh, Reformed Christians are often not winsome. Uh, I don't know of any other theological wing in the Christian church that has what they refer to as a cage stage. Has anybody heard of the cage stage of Calvinism before? Anybody familiar with that? Does anybody want to venture a guess at what that means? You've got to put somebody in the cage when they learn about Calvinism so they don't bring the Arthur Pink sovereignty of God and bang it over the head of everyone else. That's, that's basically it. You know, being enlightened to the doctrines of grace is so thrilling uh, when you fully understand it. Rick Phillips wrote a brilliant book. I recommend it heartily to everybody that I can, especially new to the Reformed faith. We often think about cold Calvinism, and it's just systematic and, and, and purely dogmatic, and it's just intellectual assent to a, a series of truths. Rick Phillips wrote a book called What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace? In each chapter, when he talks about total depravity and and perseverance all the way through, each chapter ends with a lengthy explanation of why that is amazing truth that we should relish and love rather than just submit to. And it's a very wonderful approach, but he helps move people from the cage stage, that kind of um, pit bull, I've got something now that I need to go get everybody and tell them the truth and convince them and shake them to the ground if I have to. And so you need to put that person in a cage until they calm down. But that's often as far as some Reformed Christians get. They never leave that stage. An increasing number of blogs and online presences on social media, for example, means that more Reformed Christians are being heard, and they're being heard as Reformed Christians, and unfortunately, not all of them are the ones we want being heard. So, who's had this experience before? What church do you go to? Oh, Christ Covenant Church. What sort of church is that? We're a Presbyterian church. Oh, I know about Presbyterians. You've heard that before. You've had that experience. Oh, I, I know what that means. I've, I've read some of that stuff online before. I know who they are. And all of a sudden, you find yourself lumped into a group that someone without any real understanding of what that group means has judged from an interaction. Now, let me offer a few uh, what I believe are truisms about that. The people that say something like that, that would respond by saying, oh, I know what, oh, you're Reformed, I know what that means, or Presbyterian, they're probably listening to the most abrasively Reformed voices online and coming to a conclusion that the rest of us are that way. That's kind of how that goes. Nobody has ever said, oh, my goodness, oh, Reformed theology. There are just some of the most gentle, kind Uh, tender men and women that I've ever met. I love their love for the sovereignty of God and their confidence in his providence. I love the, the whole Christ that's preached in those churches. I want nothing to do with that. Rather, they say, 
you guys are pretty angry about being reformed, aren't you? Like you, everybody that you disagree with, you argue with. There's really no difference between the way you argue and the way the world argues. So I think it does matter if we're winsome, because at least on the personal level, in our uh, spheres of influence, we can help swing the tide in favor of a winsome Christianity. And this, the fact that Reformed Christians are not often wisdom, wis, winsome is a historical reality. I mentioned earlier the uh, letter Calvin wrote to William Farrell on being more accommodating. Uh, there's a quote that I have here uh, further from George Gillespie, who is one of the Westminster divines, on the divisiveness with which people speak is often like trying to put water in a broken cistern. It's not persuasive. It doesn't hold any value to the world around us. John Knox, who loved the Lord, loved Reformed theology, loved Calvin and his teaching and his methods in in Geneva, is almost exclusively remembered as a firebrand. Even though if you read any biographies about him, you discover that he was one of the most humble people, uh, almost to a fault humble and self-deprecating about his worthlessness to be a preacher for the gospel and his desire to see people know Christ as he's revealed in Scripture. But he was a firebrand to the extent that his grave was dug up and the place where John Knox was buried is now parking stall number 23 in a garage somewhere. One of the greatest men in the history of the last 500 years of Scotland is underneath a parking garage slab of concrete because nobody there, all he was remembered for was being an upender. Right. And he certainly was a prayerful man out of humility and his desire to see people know Christ. And so we want to remember that there's, um, you often only have one chance to show people what you're about. And so we want to be thoughtful about the way that we approach people in disagreement. Kaya, yes, sir, Craig. Are you saying, uh, just clarification, John Knox was not winsome or that people perceived him as not? Or what yeah. I think that uh, he was probably much less winsome than he could have been, but it was certainly a perception because his public persona was so uh, fiery. Yeah, I think that's really the core of the issue is people who disagree with you theologically Mm -hmm. uh, will often use this as a weapon Mm -hmm. to discredit what you're saying. Sure. No matter how winsome you are. Sure. They're going to say you're not winsome if they disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is true with all of what you're saying are biblical principles and historical principles that there are cases where people actually are not. Right. I mean, Luther's probably not very winsome. But then you got to sit there and say, well, does God sometimes have purposes? And I think that you're going to get into that. Yeah, I am. And and I think, so let me let me say this, Craig, because I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying. There's certainly... Um, there's a difference between identifying the reality that throughout history there have been people who have been called to light a fire and the disposition of your average Reformed Christian being super fiery. Uh, there's a difference between those two things. Um, the other thing I would say is what I don't mean to imply is that we have any control over theological opponents painting us in an inaccurate light. Yeah. But like Paul says, if you're going to be a servant and you're going to be abused as a servant, don't give them reason to do it. Yeah, I feel like in this church, what what you're doing now is trying to preserve, for the most part, preserve what this church has, which to me is Hmm. what you're talking about. Hmm. I don't feel like people are Mm non-winsome towards people with different opinion here. Sure, I think that's largely true. I think we're trying to preserve it. Yeah, so what, what, the point of this is not, you know, there's not a hidden agenda behind this lesson other than to say it's significant that we talk right. and kind of um, circle the wagons on how we want to approach our uh, fellow Christians and the world around us, yeah. Uh, point number two, being unchristlike. this is under the, the question, does it matter? Being unchristlike is a bad tactic for pointing people to Christ. Uh, it's just a bad tactic for pointing people to Christ. While Christ certainly pulled no punches, for example, he pronounced woes against the Pharisees and scribe, um, he also had the unique benefit of knowing what was in men's hearts. 
Uh, look down there at subpoint two there, Charles Spurgeon on the elect. Perhaps you've heard this story before. Spurgeon said, if God had painted a yellow stripe up and down the back of all of his elect, I'd be running around London lifting shirts up. But since he hasn't, I'm obligated to preach the gospel to everybody. And so the difference between Charles Spurgeon and you and I and Christ is that Christ had the benefit of knowing what was in men's hearts. And so when he pronounced woes against cities, or when he pronounced woes against the scribes and Pharisees, he did have the unique benefit of knowing what was going on in their hearts. Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, did not entrust himself to many, and so forth and so on. And so there, is a, there, there are points of contact between Christ's earthly ministry and our Christian witness, and there are also points of discontinuity because he's uniquely the incarnate Son of God. And so we don't want to over extend that connection, uh, but we don't want to miss it either because Jesus was kind and compassionate. He looked out and saw the crowds and he was uh, moved in his spirit. He, was com- he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He said, I am gentle and lowly. Come to me, all you who are laboring, and I'll give you rest. And so the points of contact we want to emphasize are the disposition of kindness and mercy and gentle spirit that Christ emulated rather than attempting to know what's in men's hearts and then judge them accordingly the way he was able to do. And we need to remember that Jesus was usually speaking to the unfaithful Jewish religious establishment or unrepentant cities rather than a lost and helpless world. He didn't go out on the mountainside and teach the Beatitudes and then at the end said, and if you idiots don't get this stuff, you got nothing to do with me. Right? There was a, now, he did say things to the scribes like that. The reason you don't believe is because you're not among my sheep. And so he would say things like that to them. But when he spoke to the crowds and to the people who were hurting and helpless, he was very gentle and very loving. I'm, I need to move a little quicker here. I need to leave some time for Jim at the end here. We often think, and just some self-evaluation here, We often think that the most important thing we can do is show someone that they are wrong or how they are wrong rather than lovingly showing them what's correct. Do you notice the difference between those two things? It is different to say you're wrong or you're wrong because. There's a difference between that and saying, let me show you, let's talk through this passage together and let me explain to you what the Bible is saying here or what our doctrine teaches here. There's a difference between those two things. But we often think the most important thing, the the first step in the journey is being embarrassed and shown that you're wrong. I want you to move along with me in the Reformed faith, and so the first thing I need to do is tear down your errors. And we, we approach brothers and sisters in Christ this way. I'm not even talking about the lost world. I'm talking about other Christians. Other people, uh, Acts 20, 28 is one of the heaviest passages in Scripture for me as a minister where Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, um, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, those whom Christ purchased with his own blood. And we think that the best way to treat them is like fools because they're not where we are. And we think the best way to approach their error is to simply highlight it rather than highlight the truth. One of the benefits of the truth of Scripture is that It is enticing because it's God's truth. It's like Lewis said, I don't need to defend a lion. I just need to let him out of the cage. I don't need to polemically abuse someone into the truth. I just need to show it to them. Often we're persuaded that what the world needs or our theological opponents need is our airtight logic and persuasive rhetoric. So if I could just speak as quickly as I can, as smoothly as I can, and as logically coherently as I can, what that's going to, that's going to win people. That's going to convince people. Um, I don't remember who said it. It might have been Mark Twain. It's, it's almost impossible to convince a foolish person that they've been fooled. And so our airtight logic and rhetoric is hardly the number one principle in doctrinal debate or even in evangelism. Rather, our Christ-like behavior and attitude and love and joy are the things that people need to see. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Just a rapid-fire flip through this chapter. Uh, This chapter, perhaps above all other chapters in the New Testament, emphasizes this sort of disposition all the way from the beginning of the chapter. Verse 2, 
uh, he tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, so on and so forth. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Just heads up, um, uh, excuse me, hands up if you are someone else's other. All of us should have our hands up. I'm another to each of you, and you all are another to me. And so when Paul here says, bearing with one another, we tend to go, yeah, you know what? That is like my whole, that's my life. I just, I'm constantly bearing with other people. But Paul's talking about you here also, because you're somebody else's one another. So just as much as I have to bear with you all in love, you all have to bear with me in love. And so let's not forget who we are in the body. Verse 2, again, uh, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, this has been um, kind of co-opted by the uh, zealous end of the spectrum in the Reformed camp, and they've translated this, that speaking the truth is love. No matter how you do it, speaking the truth is loving. Um, And I don't deny the fact that it's more loving to tell someone the truth than to withhold the truth from them, but that's not what the verse says. It says, when you speak the truth, do it in love, out of love, in a loving way, which is why our opening verse was, let your words always be gracious, seasoned with salt. He'll say again here in verse 29, again, sticking with this chapter, let no corrupting talk, corroding talk, come out of your mouth but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace to those who hear. Um, Verse 25, again, the same way. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So several verses there in Ephesians 4 that encourage uh, that what the world needs is not our airtight logic and persuasive rhetoric, but rather our loving way of telling them the truth. It's often the case that a cold Calvinism is most evident within the church rather than in church-world interactions. So much of the winsomely reformed approach to living has more to do with our inner church relationships within the body of Christ than it does with those outside of our uh, churches. We often want to have a, a loving appeal to the unbeliever, but then a kind of harsh disciplinary approach to the believer who's not mature in their faith. But if this is true, that cold Calvinism is most evident within the church, then surely John 13, 35 ought to be a guiding text for those interactions. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, if you beat each other with your Bibles. (laughs) Right? Which is why a hardcover Bible is the best weapon for the Reformed Christian. (laughs) No, of course not. Of course not. And you folks that are using your Bible on the phone, you guys have already lost the battle. I mean, that thing's not going to do any damage. You can throw it at somebody. Yeah, well, Belva. That's right. <laughs> you, could, you, could, uh, you could throw it off out of the window at somebody and get them that way. <laughs> but, oh, my goodness. You need a catapult to use that one. <laughs> John 13, 35, our love for one another, our love for one another within the body of Christ ought to be the controlling feature for our interactions with one another, our doctrinal interactions and otherwise, and otherwise. Galatians, Colossians, 2 John, 3 John, perhaps these are books that pop to your mind where Paul is very, Paul and John, I should say, are very uh, firm in their opposition to error they are in large measure written against those who are outside the faith, who are pretending to be within it, rather than those who are confused about what the pure faith really is. He's talking about people who deny the faith, who upend the church, who create division themselves within the church, right? Proverbs tells us that there are several things that the Lord hates, and some of those, among those, is those who sow seeds of discord. And so it's not unchristian or um, It's not a failure to be gentle or winsome to firmly speak out against divisiveness within the church. But there's, again, a difference between that. We're so broad brush, aren't we? And we're we're being asked to live the Christian life uh, with a fine 
painting brush rather than a, a large, something you'd use to whitewash a fence or paint a wall. But that's kind of how we approach every disagreement. Again, see uh, Priscilla and Aquila. This, is, this might be where I end just to give Jim some time. Uh, so let me move into this next section. Being winsomely reformed. So perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I, I want to be more winsome. I find myself more abrasive by nature or whatever it may be. So how do I get there? I believe that being winsomely reformed is rooted in theological confidence. I already mentioned the humility factor, so I don't mean to dismiss that. But I think theological confidence has a lot to do with the way that you're able to approach people that you disagree with. It's often the fear of losing the argument that drives a harsh doctrinal debate. When we put primacy on wanting to be the one who is right, we tend to idolize winning rather than aiming for all of us to come to the truth together. And so we're really building ourselves up when we tear other people down, aren't we? We talked about this over the last couple weeks. Judgmentalism is the same thing. We put other people down in order to highlight our own uh, faithfulness to the law or to the rules or uh, intellectual um, acumen regarding doctrinal truths. But often, and just like we said last week, sometimes the reason we judge other people is to get the spotlight off of us. Because I don't want you to be looking in my life for my sins, so I'm going to point out that person's sins to everybody. And the same may be true about our inability to be winsome in theological debate. So uh, Jeff and I have a disagreement over said topic, and instead of my fear of losing the argument and being embarrassed means that I need to try to tear him down and put him on his heels so he can't throw any solid punches, right? I want him to be on the defensive, and then it appears that I've won the battle, even if I have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's often the case. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's often the case. Sorry, Jeff. There was more to that sentence that just wouldn't come out. Um, <clears throat> But this is often the way that we approach doctrinal disagreement. One of, the, one of the ways that you can measure this in your own heart, or if you're an observer, a casual observer of a disagreement, perhaps online, is the increased volume with which the debaters speak is often evidence that they're no longer really aiming to speak the truth in love, but rather to win the argument for their own glory. So knowing Reformed theology well is the bedrock of winsome engagement. Being confident in your doctrine and what we believe, what the Bible teaches, means that you aren't afraid of being embarrassed by a tough question. Being confident in your doctrine comes from putting the hours into studying what we believe. So let me just encourage you this way. If your thought is, this class was great, now I never need to think about that again, then <laughs> you're, you're not moving toward a winsome disposition or an ability to have one in the public sphere or within the church. Because you're not going to have the, the core knowledge and the understanding of what it is we do believe to answer questions about tough topics, disagreeing topics. And again, lastly here, being concerned principally about God's glory relieves you from the need to be right. Um, we, we're so horizontal, aren't we? We think in horizontal terms, I, I have to be right, I have to be right. I don't want someone thinking that I don't know what I'm talking about. I would be embarrassed to have to say, I don't know, or you know what, that's a really good point, because does that mean I'm conceding? Does that mean... But if we're really concerned about God's glory, rather than our own reputation, it takes the burden off having to abrasively fight for ourselves in the midst of a doctrinal disagreement. And we can't take this too far, so I'll let you read those uh, on your own. Just... Let me, uh, there's a couple examples here that I don't want to leave you without some context. I say gentleness at the expense of truth is a false dilemma. It's a false dichotomy. When you say that you have to either choose to be gentle or speak the truth, you're proposing a logical fallacy. Um, for example, disciplining your children. A number of years ago, there was a woman at a church that I attended uh, who had gone through a pretty ugly divorce and was left by her husband with three young kids. And she was standing in a circle of women after the service lamenting how difficult it was for her, right, rightfully so. I mean, I cannot even imagine that situation. And, um, and she said, I'm really struggling with how to, um, I'm really struggling with loving my children or disciplining them and how to strike a balance. And my wife said, what's the difference? 
it is loving to discipline your children, right? And so just to make the correlation here, you can discipline your children in a gentle way, just like you can honk the horn, believe it or not, in a gentle way. There's a big difference between because someone's not going at a red light after two seconds or a kind of toot toot because you want the person to, oh, I didn't realize that the light had turned green, right? There's a big difference between the two. We've shifted culturally into the age where the only thing a person can do is lean on the horn with their full weight for five seconds to let you know that I'm mad rather than awareness like, hey, you're crossing into my lane. Hey, light turned green. You know, there's a difference between those two. And then again, unity at the expense of truth has ironically led to divisions in the church. Isn't that funny? That unity at the expense of truth creates division, not unity. And so the example I put here is Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer. They were part of this Westminster um, conference that was held at Lloyd-Jones' church in London for a number of years. There's a whole series of books called the Puritan Papers that are a collection of essays from the men that spoke there. Packer was one of the predominant ones. And as Packer, uh, and I don't mean to speak ill of J.I. Packer, but this is just a historical anecdote about the relationship there. As he adopted some ecumenical um, approaches to disagreement within the broader church in England, Lloyd-Jones became frustrated with that and thought that that was taking, a, I keep using this word, a, a kind of a squishy approach to disagreement rather than a faithful approach to the truth. And it broke the relationship for a long time. Uh, And the same was true with other men throughout that era as well. Um, Billy Graham, for example. So were you saying the the cause of that could be seen as the squishiness of Packer rather than the firmness of Lloyd-Jones? Well, it's probably a combination of both. Uh, But it started, it didn't start because Lloyd-Jones said we need to be faithful to the truth. It started because Packer said he wanted to be more ecumenical in in some of his uh, relationships. So I'm going to let Jim come up here. And uh, cover down the last 10 minutes. We, Jim, you know this. We've probably got 15 minutes left uh, just based on time. I'm going to give this to you because we are recording, so I'm just going to clip this on, and I'll take my notes out of the way. Thanks, Kyle. You're, um, in my view, a perfect man to talk about this um, subject. In all seriousness, I'm so grateful for your uh, winsome ministry in the life of our church. And actually, I just want to begin by um, noting that there's a little bit of an elephant in the room in this discussion on winsomeness, in that if you look at the etymology of the word, I think it's incredibly critical for us to consider as it relates to this subject. The etymology of the word winsome um, comes from the combination of the word, the Old English word win, W-Y-N, and some. And win, W-Y-N, literally translates as joy. Joy. Literally, the definition, especially when it was in Common usage, late 1800s, early 1900s, meant joy-some, joy-filled. And we cannot have a conversation about what it is to be winsomely reformed without bringing front and center, the way that Bill Lindsay, for example, does with me every time I see him, a sense of what it is to carry joy. It is at the heart of this conversation of being um, winsomely reformed. Um, The second thing that I just want to share with you before I highlight five really quick principles that have been a blessing to me uh, in hopes that that might be a blessing to you is the idea of judo. Uh, 1999, there was an amazing article that was... um, published in um, the Harvard uh, Business School Journal. And it was called Judo Strategy. And the whole principle was that um, effective business leaders learned, and they made a very compelling case, went on to become a book, but it absolutely changed the way that I viewed what it was to do business well. Not in terms of karate, 
but in terms of judo. And I think that part of growing in our maturity in Christ is learning to do less karate and more judo, meaning that we develop enough theological confidence. And you see this, by the way, in the engagement that Dr. Olson referenced, Paul, um, in Athens at Mars Hill. Um, You see the theological confidence of somebody who is willing to take somebody's story, somebody's idea, somebody's idol, and use the weight of that coming at them to the advantage, not of themselves, because, by the way, if we want to be theologically winsome, it's never about us winning. It's always about the glory of God and the uplifting of another, as as you pointed out, Kyle. So this whole principle of judo is very important, and I have to tell you that it's very hard to be theologically winsome, I believe, if we're constantly on the defensive and looking to make that chop block blow. Uh, So for me, I've been at different stages in my life where I've sensed a lack of theological confidence that comes across in the opposite terms of winsomeness, where somebody says to me, well, but I, you know, read this in John MacArthur's uh, book, and I'm thinking, uh, he, does, he gets baptism wrong. Boom. You know, he's, he's out of the conversation. J.I. Packer, by the way, one of my heroes in the faith, I, I believe one of the greatest um, modern theologians, he gets something wrong with um, Jones, and we can write him off. That, that's our instinct, and I think it expresses a fundamental lack of the theological confidence that can help us to be winsomely reformed. C.S. Lewis, he's an Anglican, <laughs> you know, and on and on it goes. For me, this recent experience has um, come upon me where with my son, John Mark, as some of you know, we've built this little cabin called Walden Cabin, a replica of Henry David Thoreau's cabin at Walden Pond. And every weekend we have visitors coming in from all over with all kinds of different backgrounds. It's stunning. And they want to talk about Thoreau. And the more (laughs) after we started building that I read Thoreau, the less I liked him. (laughs) Okay, so what does that mean in those conversations? What it means is that I actually had to get more theologically confident that I could like and highlight the way in which Thoreau, for example, carried wonderment in the way that he processed um, God's creation around him And I could lift that up while at the same time saying, boy, in many ways, uh, this man was quite a mess. Um, But but in other words, I could delight in certain aspects of Homer's work, even though he wasn't a Christian, but there's, there's profundity there. And if I truly believe that every good story is a reflection of the great story, as C.S. Lewis put it, then, boy, there are ways to make things friendly, this is judo, not karate, to gospel proclamation that we might otherwise think are irredeemable. Just a thought. Um, So there are uh, just a a couple of quick points in follow-up to Kyle's excellent Uh, points that I'd like to add to the conversation. And I'm going to uh, just phrase these in terms of the power of. There are five things in in my life that have come to me sometimes sweet and sometimes hard uh, in terms of this whole subject of 
winsomeness. And I just want to begin by noting the power of humility. We're talking about all kinds of different theologians in this class, so let me throw that famous theologian, Indiana Jones, into the mix. <laughs> Dr. Olson is now walking out of the classroom. <laughs> but I love that line, only the penitent man will pass. Some of you remember it. Um, in Indiana Jones 3, and so it is in terms of winsomeness. When we read um, in Philippians chapter 2, these great words, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. That, to me, in approaching the idea of how we might be winsome in communicating our faith is the beginning point. Only the penitent man will pass into winsomeness that matters for God and matters to others. Second, the power of the question. The power of the question. We forget that all the time. We want to... Uh, think that immediately we need to be telling other people what they need to know when if we follow Christ's example what we'll see is for example in the gospel of Luke alone Jesus the son of God asked 52 questions 52 questions in the gospel of Luke alone why is that not because he needed to know the answer from the people he was asking the question, right? But because he was trying to help them to learn and he was trying to teach us how to help other people to learn. The power of the questions um, matters. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? There's um, a dignity that he is giving to the other person in asking a question that is the most important question that they'll ever have to answer. Um, The the third power of, I'm trying to fly through these things quickly because I know our time is very tight, is the power of the quote. The power of the quote. Um, To me, in many conversations that can even be very difficult theological conversations. The importance I've learned over time of saying, well, so-and-so said this. I think that's very reasonable. What do you think? The power of the quote is um, very important. And of course, Jesus did this all the time. So much so that when you think about uh, power of the question, who do you say I am? Everybody remembers Jesus saying, who do you say I am? And asking many other questions. With regard to the power of the quote, you have heard it said, right? So he's talking about other people saying these things. Sometimes he's saying, you've heard it said? Is that really true? Or is that, you know, not true? But to reference quotes from others helps focus people not on ad hominem, but on an idea. Um, When uh, Kyle, for example, in a conversation, quotes Augustine, who said that we will um, not be filled until we find our fill in Christ, effectively, um, it, it creates conversation differently than Kyle saying, we will not, you will always be thirsty. You will help me with the quote from Augustine. Pardon me? Our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It's a different dynamic when you're quoting somebody else and inviting people uh, to engage in it. Number four, um, the power of kindness. Uh, I I was uh, considering as we were talking earlier this morning, for example, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And when he says, after asking her a question, and after talking about 
some quotes that they were both familiar with, sources that they were both familiar with. He says, you are right in saying that. Uh, what you say is true. He, there's a, there's a, a power that comes in kindness in conversation um, that we can sometimes forget about or neglect. And then finally, um, the power of personal story. When Jesus meets the invalid, for example, in John chapter 5. By the way, isn't that an incredible word? An invalid, somebody who is invalid. It's just stunning. It, it just hit me afresh um, this morning and looking at the passage. But he, he's interacting with the quote-unquote invalid who's clearly not invalid. You can tell, by the way, that Jesus is interacting with him if you have any question and by what happens following it. But he says to the man, do you want to be healed? He steps, again, with a question into the power of his personal story going to the heart of his intention. And I, I have to... Uh, tell you that there is a, a matter in my life, kind of a thorn in my side, uh, as Paul and I'm sure each of you has, that I've um, prayed would be relieved. It's a physical um, situation, and um, and the Lord has not. Um, seem fit to do it. But I had somebody in the church who was praying for me about it. it. It's a consequence of a car accident many years ago. And um, they confronted me in the hallway just a couple weeks ago and said, by the way, are you praying as one who really wants to be healed? And the way that they asked me the question um, could have been very offensive. But the way that they asked me the question, just as Jesus asked that question in John 5, drew my heart into a deep theological place um, that has changed the way um, that I'm praying, not just about my own um, physical infirmity, but about the infirmities of others who are brothers and sisters around me. So, um, I, I know, again, we've only had these moments. I want to pivot back around to where we began um, with that etymology of the word winsome. Sometimes if a word bothers us, it's because it bothers us as a consequence of the fact that we don't like the way that it defines something that we're not. And I look at my wife, Rachel, and the way that she carries joy contagiously is something I wish before the Lord that I did more. (laughs) And we all have people around us. I highlighted Bill Lindsay as an example, but people who are winsome in contagious ways for the gospel and when we think about what it is to be winsomely reformed might we all just recenter ourselves in what it is to know our guilt to know the grace that covers it and to delight in gratitude because of it um, and that uh, will be the biggest step along with knowing what it is to be a steward of a conversation um, that aims not at our own win, but rather at lifting up others and lifting up God. It's not about lifting up ourselves. It's about lifting up others and lifting up God and doing it in a way um, that makes the joy of being in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ um, apparent to those with whom we find our company. So why don't we close in a uh, word of prayer. 
and ask that the Lord would have mercy on all of us in the positive sense of winsomeness to be more of it um, for his glory and for the good of the world. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, you are the font of every good and perfect thing. Uh, We know it and we know how broken we are. We ask that you would by the work of your Holy Spirit in us, conform us to the image of Christ um, because of your said, your steadfast loving kindness toward us. Lord, may we carry covenant life and light and love uh, into the world in a way that is truthful and because of its truthfulness, um, brings much goodness to the world. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.